Hello and welcome to the Owen Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with the legal and financial news that matters to you. My name's Jo Mosley, I'm a solicitor in Erwin Mitchell and I write our employment law blogs, newsletters and keep our clients up to date. This week I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague Charlotte Rees-John, who's a partner and the head of our consumer goods and services area, and Steph Evans-Hill, who is head of HR at PPG Architectural Coatings. Hi ladies, how are you doing? Good, thanks. Hi Jo. Hello. Very well, thank you. Hi, Joe. Hi, Charlotte. Nice to meet you, Steph. So thank you both for joining us. I think this is going to be a really interesting discussion. Today, we're going to talk about the impact of the skills gap on mainly retail and the hospitality sector and look at the strategies businesses can deploy to get the staff they need. We're going to focus in particular on how organisations that embrace diversity and inclusion are usually good places to work and will find it easier to both attract and to retain staff. Before I bring in the panel though, I thought it would be helpful to set out the context. So we're in a post-pandemic landscape. People are evaluating what they want from work. There was a recent trial into four-day working week in the UK that the results came in a few weeks ago and what they demonstrated was that 92% of businesses on that trial said that they were going to continue with it and a decent number had already adopted four-day working as a permanent way forward. 57% of those businesses also said that they had um, found it easier to retain their staff because of you know work-life balance and all of those sorts of issues. But we've also seen an increase in the expectations that staff have about their roles as a result of the pandemic. People want to be more flexible where they can. And I think we also know from research that different generations want different things from work. So, you know, the idea is that work isn't the be all and end all and that they are looking for a much better work life balance. You know, the idea being that life is too short to plow absolutely everything into work to the exclusion of all everything else. And we also know that around 47% of millennials are looking in particular for organisations that offer good diversity and inclusion practices. So that's one of the things that they're looking at when they are sizing up potential employers. Now, we all know that the UK in particular is suffering from a skilled labour problem. And it's one that's been recognised by the government. So demand is exceeding availability and that in itself is pushing up pay growth over what many businesses can actually afford. And despite that, you've still got a problem where many staff are still dissatisfied with their jobs. Even when they're getting pay increases, the inflation, um, particularly around household bills and food, is much higher than the, the current levels. And we know that morale is very low in very, in many sectors. People are working harder for less, and that's leading to both stress and burnout. So it's a pretty miserable picture across the board, I think. The government is recognising that there's a problem, and we saw from budget announcements that it wants to encourage, in particular, the older workforce back, to, back into work. And it's introduced this idea of having an MOT for over 50s um, to try and get them back into the workforce. Whether that will be enough remains to be seen. 
And actually, before we go on to the specific questions, maybe I can ask our panel about that. Do you think that getting over 50s back into work is going to solve our skills problem? Maybe I can come to you first, um, Steph. Yeah, look, I think it's a really interesting point and I've been watching this keenly in the news over the next few weeks. I think it's interesting and I think we should encourage and allow people in their 50s or beyond if they want to consider different uh, opportunities for their career. Why not? You know, lifelong learning should be exactly that. And, and you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't feel that we have to compromise on how much we learn because of the age or the number of years on our CV. So I'm totally open to that. However, I do think that we shouldn't over rely on that as our main lever to pull. We know that since Brexit, a lot of people uh, from different parts of, of the world and different parts of Europe have gone home. And that's caused a huge amount of, of strain and pressure on certain parts of the industry. And when I think about my industry, and I know we spoke about it briefly before, Joe, you know, some of the uh, external contractors that are related to my industry, for example, painters, a lot of those individuals were Eastern European and they've since gone home to their various home countries. And as a UK, we've not been investing in that skills, uh, in, that, in those skills over a number of years. So now we're faced with a huge skill gap. And, you know, it's great that we're having opportunities for people who are older to, to upskill and con consider different careers. But this is a short term issue now. Yeah. Um, not uh, necessarily one that can be uh, solved short term. Yeah, thank you. I think that's very sensible. Charlotte, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I think Steph put that really well. Um, I think one of the areas that needs focus on is the digital skills gap. And I think that that um, is not just over 50s, uh, as someone fairly close to that age, I'd like to make that point. <laughs> um, but that it, there is a digital skills gap from entry point. And it's this idea and understanding of ensuring that our workforce have the right skills for the jobs that are needed and that the effort and support goes into ensuring that and that ability to continually upskill. So it used to be the case, didn't it, that you'd go a job for life. We talked about jobs for life. It just doesn't exist. It's very rare now. Yeah. Most yeah. individuals see themselves not only having several jobs, but several careers. So, you know, youngsters coming into the workplace, they don't see is 18. They don't go, oh, I've got to be a lawyer and I'm going to be a lawyer until I retire. They might go, oh, I'll have a go at that. And then I'll move into a different sector or into a different industry. And it, rather than being afraid of that, I think what we need to do is start to harness um, that appetite for change and that appetite to want to be upskilled and change skills. But we've got to be ready for it um, and be able to deliver. Can I come back to you on something, um, Charlotte? We've we've said that there's a UK skills shortage. And in November, I don't know whether you saw the stats, but the Office for National Statistics found that 13.3% of the businesses that it surveyed said that they couldn't recruit enough staff and there were around 1.19 million vacancies over that over that period. We're focusing on retail and the hospitality sector today. Do we know how badly they're impacted? Yeah, it's interesting. You quote there the 13%, which is high, which is really high. But if you look at accommodation and food service, so hotels, hospitality, uh, restaurants, leisure, it's at 37.4%, you know, let's round it up, wow. 40%. I mean, that is significant. It's not a new issue, I have to say. It has been creeping up for a number of years. 
But there's no doubt that the hospitality accommodation particularly are being really significantly impacted. And Brexit comes back to what Steph was saying. Brexit, there is no doubt, is, is the critical point here. Um, there is also an issue around the digital skills gap. Um, when you look at retail, the stats are that 79% of retail jobs need digital skills, 79%. And right. so, you know, a significant number of potential candidates don't have the skills for the roles. So all sectors are impacted. But absolutely, leisure, hospitality, retail are particularly impacted. And I think we'll all see when we go on holiday. It's also a regional thing. So down in Cornwall, again, they are really suffering. And anyone who travels around the country will see signs outside of restaurants, staff wanted. Um, they'll see chefs, particularly another area where uh, there's a real it's actually disrupting business as usual. So restaurants are having to open fewer hours, uh, they're having to reduce menus because they have not got the skilled staff to deliver the hours and the customer service that they want to be able to. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you say about the signs. I was in Wales last year and there was a sign outside one of the pubs there and it said staff wanted alive or dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that sort of summed it yeah. up. I think it's a really interesting point about this sector, and we were talking about DNI because, you know, social mobility. These are the sectors that over-index the social mobility. There are no barriers to entry, and so really there should be, as you say, alive or dead. We, the skills required. We should be able to upskill, and we should be able to attract more staff to these sectors particularly to help with DNI. I know we'll talk about that in more detail. Yeah, sure. Now Steph, I'm sure that you don't recruit alive or dead. Well that certainly not wouldn't be one of your advertising slogans. <laughs> but could, <Certainly> not. <laughs> could you perhaps tell us a little bit about your business and whether you've talked about um, painters in particular being there are a shortage of those, but are you experiencing shortages across the board or are they focused on more sort of practical skills I suppose practical based jobs yeah and there's there's a real mix so when we look across the industry obviously I've mentioned painters but certainly when I think about the manufacturing arm of our business you know it, and this goes way before Brexit implications or, or Covid pandemic implications but you know there's a real shortage of engineers across the industry particularly in manufacturing environments so when we think about where engineering is taking us and, and you know, the, the fantastic opportunities available, there just aren't enough people that are training to become engineers. Mm. And that means that we are relying, you know, industry is having to rely on, on contractors, on agency work. And actually, we're doing a lot to fill some of those skills gaps in areas like apprenticeships, which is great, um, but they obviously take time to come to fruition. So, that's one example. The second example, and it comes back to Charlotte's point, linked to areas like retail, some of the, the front front facing customer facing roles in some stores as well. You know, there's been challenges there. You know, our talent pool that we've got available to choose from across the UK has shrunk. So I've mentioned that a lot of people have gone back to their home countries following Brexit. More people have taken early retirement. Right. Uh, because they decided through the COVID pandemic, actually, I, I want out of this. I, I don't want to, to have to work anymore. I'm, I want to take my pension now. Mm -hmm. And we've also seen that a lot of younger people have stayed in education longer. 
because their experience of being in education during those pandemic years was impacted. Yes. So a lot more younger people have decided to stretch that out and, and have, you know, a longer education experience. So that means that the available talent pool has shrunk. So when we put an advert out there, we are competing as as every other employer is, you know, of course, we want the very best people and we want to attract the very best people. But, you know, it, it is competitive out there for sure. And Charlotte, are you hearing the same stories from the sectors that you represent? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes for the whole of the consumer sector. So from from creating the product to transporting the product to selling the product. And th- there is a shortage of, of staff across all of those different parts of the supply chain. And that creates a problem. And in a marketplace which is crowded with employers seeking employees full stop, not necessarily the best talent, but staff full stop, then it's how they set themselves apart. How do they attract that pool of employees? How do they attract them to their particular sector or their particular product that they're selling how do they do that and that's what a lot of the clients that i act for and the businesses that i work with are really focusing now how can they set set themselves apart how can they stand out in the crowd well that leads us very nicely on to the next topic i was going to ask you about we know that businesses can't wave a magic wand and suddenly create the staff that they need we've already discussed the reasons for that We've already outlined, haven't we, that being an inclusive and diverse employer can help to attract and retain staff. I think it would be helpful, Charlotte, if you could explain what we mean by diversity and inclusion and what benefits it provides across the board for a business. Simply put, having a a diverse and inclusive workforce is where everyone is welcome and feels welcome. And why that's important is is multifaceted there's many reasons why that's important and why it is 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 fast becoming the top of companies agenda and and taking time in in board meetings you talk about attracting talent and i reference that in terms of setting yourself apart more and more employees don't just want to work for anyone Mm. they want to work for organizations that reflect their own values and it actually matters. So whether or not uh, an employer is diverse and inclusive, whether they can demonstrate that will enable them to attract employees who share those same values. It's also about retaining talent and retaining your employees, because we also alluded to the fact that that loyalty has ebbed and Mm -hmm. COVID did not help one bit. And so how do we keep employees who we pour training into and we, we we pour a lot of time and effort into and who develop the relationships with our other colleagues, but also with our customers? How do we do that? And for me, a big part of that is ensuring that, again, we reflect their values by being an organisation that is diverse and inclusive, but also making them feel that they are supported for being them, whoever they may be, and that we are allowing them to bring their best selves to the workplace. And that then touches on topics like neurodiversity. And there is significant evidence which demonstrates that having a neurodiverse workforce means that you're ahead of the game. You have different ways of thinking. You Mm -hmm. have different approaches to problems. 
And again, this is how we as organisations can be ahead of the curve, how we can not just in terms of attracting talent and retaining talent, but how we can be ahead of the curve against our competitors, about thinking about new products, new design, new ways of, of selling those products or making those products. So neurodiversity fits into that diversity and inclusion um, strategy. I think, you know, I think it's often the case that people think of diversity inclusion they think of maybe their whistleblowing policy or their bullying and harassment policy but that isn't what we mean and I think Steph has some really good examples of um, employee networks that that you've had that have supported. Yeah absolutely and look I'm, I'm incredibly proud to work for my organisation I've only worked for PPG for six months I would always be incredibly choiceful about the kind of employer that I would join because culture is really important to me and I really want to work for somewhere that I feel I can bring my best self and I don't have to edit a part of me. So actually, before I joined the organisation, you know, as we all do, we have a look online and I was really blown away by the amount of attention and focus and effort the organisation gives to DNI topics. And one of the areas, as Charlotte's just mentioned, is around the employee resource networks. So these are, there are eight ERNs across PPG and, you know, to, to give a flavor of, 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 uh, of the ERN. So we have Abilities First Network, which links into what Charlotte was saying about neurodiversity. We have the Asian Employee Network, Black Employee Network, Latinx Employee Network, LGBTQ plus Employee Network, of which I'm a member, the Veterans Employee Network, a women's leadership network and a young professionals network. So you can see through that, through those ATRNs, just the scale and the scope of representation. And these ERNs are uh, set up by, organized by and run by our own employees. So we may have external speakers, but they're run by passionate people within the community that want to uh, share their experiences, celebrate events um, and help to educate and inform the wider organisation. They all have very, very uh, senior level sponsorship, which I think is always a good indicator, right, of how senior and how serious an organisation yes. takes things like ERNs for sure. Um, and anyone is free to join any of those networks, which again, I, I think is phenomenal because that allows you to be able to access and, and be part of an ERN and seek to understand and educate yourself and understand a different experience and a different perspective. So that's certainly one of the things that I've been incredibly um, impressed by and certainly one of the core factors that attracted me to, to, to PPG as an employer when I joined a few months ago. That's a lot of different groups. I just wondered if you could tell our listeners how big your organisation is. Sure. So we've got 50,000 people uh, worldwide. So it's a, it's a big organisation. Within my region, I have three and a half thousand people. Um, so again, it's a, it's a significant population. So the reach is, is massive. Um, and, you know, it runs across a, a large number of countries where we can help to shape and help to educate people and, and raise that level of confidence and comfort um, with talking about things that, you know, sometimes can be quite difficult topics. Yes. Um, so it's it's definitely a platform which is there for our employees and run by our employees too. And do they feed in information then to managers and then it goes up the chain? So that yes, if you need absolutely. to make changes, yes. then you do so. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's the, the whole point of the uh, the senior level sponsor who's there to understand the needs of that ERN, but also how they can support, remove barriers, um, you know, provide the prioritization and focus that's needed too. So, yeah, it's taken very seriously at the most senior levels of the organisation. That's really interesting. And have you got any examples that you might be able to give us of, of things that have started off in one of these um, groups that have then changed the way in which your business operates? Um, that's a really interesting question. Um, probably not. Yeah, probably not <laughs> some great examples uh, to, to to hand so far in terms of specific detail. As I say, I've only been with the company a short while, but I'm part of the LGBT plus network, mm-hmm. um, and as part of that, they've been um, heavily involved in you know raising awareness of some topics that you know are are in the media quite a lot or there's a lot of conversations for example topics such as pronouns and actually just helping people to understand um what it means why pronouns are used um and the impact it can have on our on our colleagues as well so it doesn't always have to be you know expensive things it doesn't always have to cost a lot of money but it takes that time and care and attention for people to be able to, you know, invest in these areas and, and take time to to produce and sh- share material that's then used and accessed by employees all over the globe as well. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything you want to add to that, Charlotte? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. And it's, it's thank you, Steph, for sharing that, because I think it's really fascinating to hear how a big global organisation is delivering on diversity and inclusion. But I think that, that there's there's lots that everyone can learn from that. I think anyone operating internationally will know that we're in a a fortunate position in the UK that we can lead, we can take the lead quite often in diversity and inclusion. And I think it's important that we do uh, and have those conversations so that we can have the same um, values across the whole organisation. So that is very much my experience as well. But the other point that you made is awareness. And I think that awareness and training are um, absolutely essential. So it's not good enough to simply have a policy. It's not good enough simply to have something hidden away on your intranet. We need to be making sure that we are upskilling every every member of our organisation from the top to the bottom uh, in terms of diversity and inclusion. And I suppose that brings me round to the third point and picking up on what you were saying, Steph, which is, and I absolutely agree with, is that it has to come from the top and there has to be senior leadership, not just with their name to it, because sometimes I see that, that you have, oh, yes, somebody's got to be responsible for this. So we'll we'll get this board member to put their name to it. But actually um, making sure that all our senior leaders embody our values, are absolutely supporting and driving forward the diversity and inclusion strategy within the business. Because ultimately, um, the stories that they tell are often the most powerful. And I have seen storytelling, as simple as storytelling, as you you did make the point, it doesn't have to be expensive. It, It really doesn't. Something as powerful as some uh, as a senior leader talking about depression, talking about um, their own experiences of social mobility. Those stories can be life changing for employees as, as significant as that. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. Thank you. I wondered whether we could drill in um, a little bit to one of the um, aspects of 
DNI that sometimes doesn't get, I, I think, as, as much coverage as others. And I wanted to particularly look at flexibility um, because we know that lots of people now are looking for flexible working, whatever that means to them. And obviously it can mean a variety of things. Now, we saw a big push on flexibility during the pandemic. People were asked to work from home where they could. And obviously in the sectors that we're talking about here, that's not going to be an option for many people. If you're a tradesperson, if you're on the shop floor, you've got to actually go to your physical place of work in order to perform that. So if we assume that a lot of people are looking for flexibility, how can that be accommodated? Who wants to go first? Come on, Charlotte, you go. <laughs> it's a real challenge, Joe. It's a real challenge for the reasons that you said. And, you know, we I'm not allowed to say the word zero hours contracts because for political reasons, they became very unpopular. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because that's exactly what people are asking for and it's coming back round. And uh, within the sectors, you know, within the consumer sector, people want the flexibility to be able to work when and how much they want to work. And so there, when I when I talk about zero hour contracts, I don't mean where, you know, you sat on a bench and you might be sat with no work and you can't go and work for anybody else. Obviously, that's that's exclusivity clauses which are not permitted anymore. But what I am talking about is flexible contracts where people can say, right, OK, I'm available for work for the next six weeks and I can work you know, full time during that period. And we're able to say, great, here you go, here are the hours. But then equally, they're able to say, I'm taking the next six weeks off because of X, Y, and Z. And that's a multitude of different reasons that people want breaks from work. So, you know, traditionally we talk about looking after children, but more and more we talk about the aging workforce, we've got caring responsibility upwards. Many of us are, in, myself included, in that double bubble where we're caring for young children, we're also caring for elderly parents. And so I think there is um, that flexibility can come through that ability to choose as and when hours. And of course, retail and hospitality and leisure are our best place to be able to provide that. Often they're 24 seven, so they might be able to offer hours at, in the middle of the night. They might be able to, obviously they can offer hours at weekends. It's a 24 seven business in, in, in lots of examples. Also, there are peaks in trade. So there will be times of the year where they can offer high volumes of work. So obviously think about Christmas, uh, Easter holidays in transport, in leisure, people going away on holiday. There are certain peaks in trade where that flexibility of hours can be offered. So I think there are ways, creative ways of doing it. Um, but again, that takes some real thought for businesses because managing your workforce, managing your hours, uh, making sure that you have enough um, resource to cover the hours that you need is not a simple thing to manage. But we're quite fortunate because in as well, uh, you know, everything's advancing and technology is advancing at a frightening rate. Um, and if we can look to technology, it can help us. So, you know, whilst I've been um, advising this sector, we now see people shift swapping it, it's a touch of a button. You know, it's not it's not an issue. We just right, I can't do an issue. Someone swap. Yeah, swap. No problem. Um, and so you relying on technology, I think, is going to be really important for those businesses to be able to introduce more flexibility into their businesses. What sort of flexible models do you operate, Steph? 
So I think it's, there were some really interesting points there made by Charlotte and a couple of words spring to mind that I think help to uh, help employees to navigate this. And they are curiosity and compassion. There's no one size fits all with this. And I think COVID pushed forward all of the conversations around flexible working by years. Mm. Um, if I think back to um, the way I used to work pre-pandemic, I used to be in the office every day. I never thought anything of it, right? Because there was no alternative needed. I, I, I didn't need to think any other way. And then COVID hit and I worked from home for two years. And it helps to show you what life um, could be like if we worked slightly differently. Um, now, I enjoy being around people. So actually me working from home five days a week, that that is not uh, that is not the very best environment for me. But actually what I do appreciate is the level of flexibility um, in, especially in my kind of role. So there's no expectation for me to be in the office every day. Mm. Um, I uh, I need to be in the office the right amount of time to build relationships, create connections, share ideas, provide feedback and challenge. But actually that, there's that level of trust and flexibility there. Now, clearly I'm in a privileged position where I'm able to do that. Some of our roles we aren't able to do that. Some of our roles, people have to be physically present, whether it's in our manufacturing facilities or within our stores. But that still doesn't stop us from thinking about how we can support people in flexibility. So whether we're looking at areas like part time working or shift swaps or job shares, you know, all of these things help with providing an environment that's fit for purpose in 2023. And I think if leaders and line managers approach the conversation, not with fear, but with curiosity, how could how could I make this work? Um, rather than looking at the barriers and reasons not to, let's look at how we could work and how we could be curious and how we could do something maybe slightly differently and get the team involved to come up with the solution. That's that's real inclusion there. Um, and actually that will unlock the door to so many opportunities for um, underrepresented communities, uh, for women in senior leadership positions. Um, you know, this, this stuff matters. Um, and actually... Uh, it, it's those kind of actions that people really appreciate as well, because it means that they don't have to compromise who they are. Um, and actually, they, you know, it's a it's a place where they feel welcome and they feel like they don't have to apologise for having to work part time because they've got uh, caring responsibilities, as Charlotte's mentioned. Thank you for that, Steph. We briefly touched on the fact that people are looking to work for organisations that align to their values. How important do you think is having a reputable brand in itself important in terms of attracting staff? I think it's totally critical. And I think the the brand and reputation that you put out into the market um, helps future employees, current employees decide whether you are an employer that they want to spend their time with. So if we think about uh, earlier on in the conversation, we said that there are a large amount of vacancies. There aren't enough people to go around. Recruitment is very, very difficult. It's a candidate's market and they have choice at the minute what kind of employer they want to work for. So I think employer branding and employer values is so important more now than ever um, because people's priorities have shifted. Um, and I think to be able to put that out into the public space to say, as an employer, this is what we stand for. This is what we're going to stand up for. Um, and these are the actions that we're going to put in place to be able to commit to that. People like to see that. 
and also to to have humbleness uh, as well that you know as an organization it's impossible to get things right all the time but actually as an organization listening to feedback from from people from consumers from customers employees i think that's incredibly powerful uh and actually um you know helps people to to think about the kind of employer that they want to work for and spend all of that time that we do in employment over the years is it am i making a difference am i having a positive impact for the world do my employer's values align to mine is it somewhere that i feel i can bring my best self to work and i don't have to compromise or change my values once i step into the door so i think it's totally critical more than now than ever yep and do you do you think that it's becoming as important as pay and benefits now as well Totally. So um, when um, we speak to certainly younger generations, so Gen Z, and we talk about what's important for them, you know, it's clear that looking after the planet, being a sustainability focused employer, is very, very important. So, you know, clearly paying benefits, they're, they're always going to be important to people, right? But I feel like people want to join an organization where they feel they have a purpose and they feel that they can bring something and have a positive impact on the world rather than a negative impact. Um, I see that as becoming even more important in future generations than what we've seen previously. Yeah, yeah. Does that mirror your experience, Charlotte? Yeah, I think it's it's really fascinating. The conversations are shifting. You know, you listen to a group of friends chatting. It's about, I work for a B Corp. I work for an organisation that shares my values. It's not about, I earn X amount of pounds. That is becoming more important socially. So that becomes more important for us as a business in terms of not only attraction, but also retention. Because if, if if an employee is embarrassed by the brand for which they work, that is becoming an increasing risk for a business in terms of losing that in that employee, that valued employee, and obviously the investment that they've made into that employee. Thanks, Charlotte. So can we finish then by asking each of you where businesses should start if they're not as far on this sort of journey as Steph's business clearly is in terms of improving diversity and inclusion? Shall I ask you to go first, Steph, and then we can finish with you, Charlotte, if that's okay? Yeah, happy to. Absolutely. And I think, look, I I think the the key through this is taking time to listen to the teams. What's really important in your organisation to your people and really getting that sense of the finger on the pulse of what's going on in their lives and what are the things and the, you know, the challenges and areas that that they think the organisation should focus on. I'm a huge advocate of inclusion first, because actually inclusion is for everybody. And you know, do, doing this in a way, talking about DNI and taking actions which are right, doesn't happen overnight. It takes commitment. It takes ongoing focus and support. It takes investment in terms of time and energy, and getting to that place where leaders feel comfortable with the uncomfortable. I would say, and certainly they're the conversations that I keep encouraging my leaders to have. You know be comfortable with the uncomfortable. You do Mm. not need to be an expert in everything. You just need to have humility, curiosity, and educate yourselves um, and, and actually show that level of vulnerability, which is important as well. So listening to your teams, talking as a leadership team, putting it on your agenda, not as a one-off, 
never do it as a okay we've we've spoken about dni now that's tick that box that's 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 done it needs to be an ongoing agenda point and it shouldn't in my view just have hr um you need to have business level sponsors that prioritize this and show to the organization that this is a priority we're not just doing it because hr thinks it's a good idea we're doing it because it leads to improved business results we know that diverse teams perform better but also it's just the right thing to do. So as I mentioned earlier on, a lot of these actions and interventions don't have to cost the earth, but it does take time. It does take care and energy and commitment. This is not just a, a one day and you're done. This is ongoing. And actually, you know, the more you focus on this, the, the bar always raises, right? And, and you'll learn stuff tomorrow that you didn't know today. And that's okay. But I think it's all part of that journey that we're all on together. Great tips. Charlotte. You know how to follow that, Steph. That no, was it's very, pretty impressive. Very, wasn't yeah, it? very impressive. <laughs> I think for, for me, it's a lot of organizations doing lots of great things. Okay, they're doing lots of great things in the DNI space. But perhaps what they've not necessarily done is the key point that Steph made for me, which was listen to what's important to your people and customers. So um, I think we're, we're pretty good at listening to what's important to our customers, but but not so not as good at listening to what's important to our people. And for me, having a very clear strategy around where you want to be as an organization in response to what your people and customers want, and then formulating what you're going to do, how are you going to achieve that? based on those overarching aims in accordance aligned with your values is absolutely critical so something that i've done recently with a number of organizations is going in and saying right let's have a look at where we are today where are we today you know and i would go into steph's organization and i'd be pretty impressed by the sounds of it so we would say right we've got some great listening groups in place we've got some great strategies what what are we working towards what are our overall aims and goals that we're seeking to achieve by all this great activity and then working out um whether or not that is what our people want and that is so different from each organization and different in different sectors so you might find that you have 75 percent of your uh, workforce are female and they are over the age of 40. In that kind of scenario, the support and things that you might want to pay more attention to are caring responsibility, menopause, women's health. There are all sorts of things that we could be doing that would be particularly supportive of the workforce that we have. And so for me, it's that strategy. It's assessing where we're at and then it's developing that clear strategy and then it's getting the if we've not already got in place, like Steph has, that ability to listen to our people and our employees and get their engagement and their buy-in, because ultimately they're the ones that should be leading on all our employees who should be leading on our DNI strategy. Well, I must say you're both incredibly inspiring women. It's been a pleasure to talk with you both. One thing, well, three things actually that have come out of this discussion loud and clear for me are curiosity. That's been mentioned lots of times now. So the need for employers to be curious about this, this space, to persevere and to continue to listen and engage, learn and develop, and also to get buy-in from 
leaders within the business so that you can you know make a real difference that's been great thank you so much and that's it for today thank you for listening to the Erwin Mitchell podcast if you found it interesting please make sure you follow our channel and join us for the next episode thank you both very much bye-bye thank you bye thanks bye